0: Well, I'd invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6, as we move into this final chapter. We started this series about eight months ago, and um, we are finally coming to a close. And so we want to we want to try as best as we can to bring everything that we've heard over the last eight months um, to be uh, the background of what we're going to hear in this last chapter. And so we want to try to see the whole thing together together. Um, the best that we can. And so I want to encourage you to have your copy of Scripture open, and we're looking this morning at Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. And before we read God's word, let's again go to him, praying for his blessing on the preaching of it. Let's pray. Lord, again, we ask you to bless your church, to bless this congregation, to open the hearts of all who are present here, to help all of us to see and to hear our Lord Jesus. We ask that your word would take deep root in our minds and that it would grip our hearts and that you would give us understanding and wisdom and that you would shine the light of the gospel into our hearts even as this portion of scripture is read and preached. We ask that um, you would make us attentive and teach us to cherish your word more than all the silver and gold and all of the experiences of life and all the joys of life. We ask, Father, that you would make us to hunger for the the pure milk of scripture and our Lord Jesus that it reveals. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have Entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you had, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, I don't know if any of you had a similar experience to what I had when I was about to move out of my home. I had a dad who um, instructed me almost every day. I, I was reminded this week that probably not a day went by that he didn't tell me how to do something I think if I went home today, he would would probably tell me how to clean my car or how to keep something or how I should be doing things in the church. I had a dad who instructed me. And and when I left home for the first time, um, I got something of a talk, actually many talks like Hebrews 13, with many of these rapid fire instructions from my dad. I have a very wise dad, and so I was thankful for that. And the writer to Hebrews is a very wise dad. And any of you who has ex- have experienced something like that, you may not have liked it at the time and you may not have understood it at the time, but as the years go on and as the experiences happen and as the difficulties and challenges of life happen, those instructions come to bear marvelously. And I can attest that many, many, many years later, I think about many of the things that my dad told me at that point in my life and what seemed like detached, rapid fire applications were really whole life instructions. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he is taking the culmination of everything he has taught in the 13 chapters to this congregation, and he is now bringing it home. And there's a sense where it feels very rushed. Um, Sinclair Ferguson actually uh, speculates that, you know, paper was very expensive in those days and writing utensils were expensive. And so maybe the, the writer of Hebrews has to wrap it up. He, he doesn't have... The, the finance is to keep going with a careful letter, and say so you get these 20 or so applications, or maybe it's because the mailman was coming, he says, and the boat is about to leave, and the writer is going to take this letter to the congregation because we're told that this man is in chains. Whoever this man was and, and the church to whom he's writing, knows very well who he is, though we don't know who he is, he says, remember my chains. And so very likely he is in prison for the gospel, and the mailman may be coming, and so he wants to get everything out. And so he gives 20 or so applications. And the first six verses are really the applications of how to live a life of faith in Jesus on the day-in and day-out interactions, both with other believers, with your spouses in the home, and personally in how you live in this world with possessions. In many ways, they are applications to you as an individual. The first six verses are the individual applications. And notice that... The writer has given us all of this theology in 13 chapters, and now it's the applications that are going to come. And the first one he says there in in verse 1 is, let brotherly love continue. The very first thing he's going to say when he comes to press home, everything he said about Jesus being better, he's the better sacrifice, he offered himself once for all to God without spot by the Holy Spirit, he cleanses our consciences through his shed blood at the cross, he is the great high priest of our souls, he ever lives to make intercession for us, he's the forerunner who has gone through the veil into the presence of God he is greater than the temple he's greater than the Sabbath he's greater than Moses and Joshua and Aaron and the angels and don't move away from Jesus and then he says let brotherly love continue now it's interesting because you might expect that this is going to be a sermon on on love and love is and love is all it takes and love is all you need love is not all you need You need faith in Jesus Christ, and you need repentance of your sins. But next to faith in Jesus Christ, love for the saints is the distinguishing mark of a church of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that even the way that the writer sets this up and speaks about love is that he uses the qualifier he does. Notice there in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Now, he's not saying brotherly love, band of brothers to anybody you like. Scotty Smith, years ago, wrote a a little statement. As much as you wish church could be you and 20 of your best friends, it's not. Some of you know what I mean by that. As much as you wish church could be you and 20 of your best friends, it's not. And the reality is that, in, in fact, it's greater than you and 20 of your best friends. It's a family of God. And in chapter 2 of this book, the writer of Hebrews told us that Jesus is the elder brother. says that he is our brother, that he, he stands with his brethren, and that he is the worship leader among the family of God, and that he brings us together and makes us into the family of God. And that our elder brother dealt with Satan's sin and death for us, so that we might be beloved, that we might be part of a family of which this world knows nothing. And when we think about the church, and, and the writer here is encouraging these people not to move away from Christ. And what he's saying is, if you move away from Christ, you're also moving away from the family that you're a part. And that one of the powerful motives for not uh, for keeping you from moving away from Christ is that you would be exercising faith in Christ and love for the brethren. Because it's impossible, it's impossible to do what you want to do when you love the brethren. It's impossible for you not to not to want to be with your family if you're exercising love for your family. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that brotherly love must continue. Now there's something I think here, Well, there is brotherly love happening in that congregation and he's commending them, there's also the danger of it waning. There's the danger of that love waning, that I, I don't like to be around this person. And, you know, I... I've thought about this a lot this year. I've been faced to think about this a lot, that discontentments born out of selfishness um, are the default setting of our souls. And selfishness is um, really hatred for others. And so when we're not loving the brethren and we're loving ourselves, then we want our own way. And when we don't get our own way... Then we, we, um, we get discontent, we grumble. You know the conversations, they happen in our homes. You know the conversations, they happen in your car with your spouse. Somebody made you mad, you didn't get your way with something, we're going to sit here and we're not going to love the brethren. I had somebody call me yesterday in another congregation and and said, I've been in this congregation my whole life and there's this one person and they don't like me and they say I'm selfish and they they are mean towards me. And I said, are you praying for them? Are you praying for them? Because it's impossible to harbor bitterness and self-seeking in your heart if you're praying fervently for your brethren in the church of Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing thing. At the end of the day, it's not... It's not the resources that the church has. It's not even the minister that the church has. It's not the money that the church has. It's not the programs that the church has that are the most powerful evangelistic tool of the church. The most powerful evangelistic tool of the church is the love that is manifested among the people who have been redeemed by Jesus and who are trusting him. And I know that because Jesus says that. Because Jesus says, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It's the most powerful evangelistic tool that we have in our belt is the love that we are to show for the brethren. Um, I knew knew a hairstylist once who, when I went to see them, um, told me that they knew another pastor who every time he came in to get his hair cut would complain about the members in the church And then when the members of that church came in, they would complain about other members in the church. And this hairstylist told me, and and was not a Christian, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. And I think the world is watching us. The world is watching us, and we're watching each other. And when people in the world and our unbelieving friends hear us talk negatively about each other and they don't see brotherly love continuing in the body, that we lose a witness to Jesus Christ and we are actually fighting against the spread of the gospel in this world. And it's so simple. It's really so simple. Brotherly love is not, it's not hard. It's only hard because we have sinful hearts that well up with self-love and pride. I want to read something to you that I found very convicting and very helpful. Um, Hugh Binning died when he was twenty-two years old. Died when he was twenty-two, and yet listen to the maturity of this. If my brother offend me in some things, how do these vanish out of sight in view of my own guiltiness before God, and of the abominations of my own heart known to His holiness and my conscience? Sure, I cannot see so much evil in my brother as I find in myself. I see but his outside. But I know my own heart, and wherever I retire within this, I find the sea of corruption so great that I wonder not at the streams which break forth in others." What Hugh Benning is saying is that if you are are listening to the writer of Hebrews and you are looking to the crucified Jesus because there's a world of corruption in your own hearts and you need his sacrifice, you will not look at the streams of corruption that you see in your brothers and sisters. And even if you see the speck in their eye, you should first see the, the moat because your sin is within you and you should see it more glaringly so that you don't go to your brother heavy-handedly, but you love them and pray for them and you remove from your eye the mass of corruption and go to help your brother. And I think, I think what Hugh Benning is saying is actually profound, that the solution to letting brotherly love continue is you're seeing your need for Jesus Christ as Savior. And when, whenever brotherly love waxes and wanes. We have taken our eyes off of the cross. We have stopped looking at the sea of corruption within. We have stopped trusting in the cleansing blood of Jesus, and we have wanted to assert ourselves in our way. Now, I want to say this. I don't want to be heavy-handed with you this morning. I see brotherly love in this congregation. I rejoice in all the little ways I see brotherly love happening, and yet there's a word here for us, let brotherly love Continue. Now, the writer would then say, as that brotherly love continues in the church, it will then flow out. It will flow out first to strangers, and then it will flow out to the suffering. Notice there that he says in verse 2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, clearly, he has in mind the case with Abraham and the three men coming to Abraham. One of them was the Lord, two of them were angels. They're the ones that go to Sodom. He didn't know they were angels at the time. He received those men. He didn't know those men. Sarah made food for them. They showed hospitality. Clearly, the writer has that in mind. And yet, it's a word to us. And I'm not so sure that it's a word to us that we should expect that we may be entertaining an angel. I think, at the very least, it's a word that there's a blessing in ministering to those that we don't know and showing hospitality to those that we don't know. I'll never forget driving cross-country 12 years ago and I had, I had talked to mutual friends who, who called other friends around the country and asked if they would put me up and I didn't know them and stayed with several families as I went making stops on my way and I ended up staying with um, a very young guy who worked for the Navigators out in Colorado Springs and, and um, I said thank you so much for taking me in. He said, well you know, you may be an angel. I said, no dude, I'm definitely <laughs> not an angel. I promise you. And he was like, well, the Bible says. I said, listen to me. I am not an angel. But you know what? There was a blessing. There was a blessing for him. And I don't know all the ways that God blessed him. And I don't know how God has continued to bless him. But he opened his home to me when he didn't know me. I had families on the way that opened their home to me when they didn't know me. There's risk there. I know. I know the objections. Well, I've got children. I've got a wife. I've got to protect them. Sure. Measures of wisdom have to be in place. Nevertheless, when love is continuing in the fellowship, that love will trickle out to strangers. And that love may be one of the means for the conversion of strangers. Love for those who are needy in the community. Love for those who are outcast and who are lost and who are dead in their sins and trespasses. I was thinking about this actually on my way over here this morning. We raise the objections. Well, if I talk to that person on the side of the road, they probably have a gun and they're going to shoot me. And, you know, we, we think of the worst case scenario every time. And, and clearly we need caution. And yet I think I think that there's something to this, that when someone knows that you love them, even if they don't know you, chances are good they're not going to harm you. John Skilton, I've told you about him, professor of Greek at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He, um, at 63, retired, opened his home in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia, a very rough area. Um, uh, one of the missionaries coming to visit him was, was shot for $2, was shot and killed outside, down the street, uh, right off Ave. niab very, very rough area. John Skilton opened his home there from uh, 1973 until he died in 1996 at 98 years old. John would sleep on the floor, He would let missionaries sleep upstairs. Homeless people with AIDS would come in the house. They would have worship services. This man was a theological giant. And yet, never did anyone hurt John Skilton. Never did anyone hurt. And as I thought about this and I thought about him, I think there's something to it that when somebody really knows that you're loving them, that's very powerful. That's more powerful than having a firearm a lot of times. I think we don't know that because we haven't put that to the test as we ought. A lot of us don't know that experientially because oftentimes we're not seeking. We're not seeking to love strangers. Notice that as that love goes out from the brethren to strangers, it will then go out to those suffering. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as those in, as, as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now Here, the the Hebrews, remember, were in danger of persecution. They were in danger of turning away from Christ because they didn't want the persecution. And now the writer says, remember those who are suffering, who are being persecuted as if you were imprisoned with them. That even if, and and let me say this, chances are good most of you are never going to be in prison for your faith in Jesus. And and yet, that doesn't mean that our hearts should not be weighed down For all of our brethren in Pakistan right now and the church that just got bombed and the 60s whose bodies got blown apart and their families and those who witnessed it in that church building, our hearts should be burdened as if we are there suffering with them. Our prayers should be with them because they're part of the brotherhood. Let brotherly love continue. Remember those who are in prison since you also are in the body. And so the writer wraps up this first exhortation that love... Should be the overflow of faith in Christ, love to those in the church, love to strangers, love to the suffering. Well, notice next that he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, one of the hard things in chapter 13 is to figure out how do all these applications fit together? How contextually is he moving from one thing to the next? And here's my, here's my guess My guess is that the writer of Hebrews knows that one of the surest ways to quench love for the brethren, love for strangers, and love for the suffering is to live in sexual immorality. It's one of the surest ways to not care about the people God has called you to care about is to be living in sexual sin. Peter, the apostle, says sexual sin wars against the soul. I don't understand why sexual sin is so massively related to our relationship to God and others, but the Bible says sexual immorality wars against the soul. And the writer is saying, one of the chief ways for you to stay close to Jesus and to be loving the brethren is to flee sexual immorality. Notice the warning there. Let mar- The marriage bed is honorable. What he's saying is, Sex is good and beautiful in the marriage relationship. God has created marriage for it to be a blessing, an intimate blessing, a showing forth of the fellowship of Christ in the church. The marriage bed is undefiled, but God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. I want to say this this morning. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. When the Bible says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers, if we are living in sexual sin and we are unrepentant, the only expectation we ought to have is judgment. That's as clear a word as you're ever going to get from God. Fornication and adultery, God will judge. I think especially in a day when we have pornography so rampant on the internet, men and maybe women, you've got to be vigilant in repenting, in crying out in taking steps to cut off your right hand and pluck out your right eye. Because God would have you take this as seriously as you can. After giving us a whole book of how we're forgiven and accepted in Christ, he gives this glaring warning against sexual immorality. And it's also interesting to me that really what you have in verses 4 and then 5 through 7 is really warnings about sex and money. Sex and money. Isn't that interesting how... Most marriages are destroyed because of sexual infidelity and arguments over money. Sexual sin and money. Tim Keller wrote a phenomenal book um, called um, Counterfeit Gods, and it's about sex, money, and power, the idols of sex, money, and power. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is telling us, watch out for these idols. These idols will destroy um, kind of interesting, too, in verse 4 and 5, that um, he's not saying that sex is something bad in itself. He's saying God made that to be good and right and beautiful, but sexual immorality is wrong. He's not saying that money is sinful in verse 5. He's saying that greed and covetousness, the love of money, is sinful. And Keller makes a point that I thought was profound, that, that God gives us the gifts of sex and money, and one, he says, you're to keep for your spouse, and the other you're to give away lavishly. And what men do in their fallen condition is give the one away lavishly, and they hoard the other. And so we get it turned upside down, and the writer of Hebrews has said, let's get it turned right back around. The marriage bed is undefiled. Fight for purity in your heart. If you're in Jesus, fight for purity in your heart. Fight for purity in your home. Fight for purity in your marriage. Train your children to fight for purity. Teach them about the dangers. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it doesn't hold back in what it talks about. I don't know if you've ever read through the law, the, in, uh, the Pentateuch, um, but sometime a few years ago I was reading through it and, and God lists out all these different sexually deviant behaviors and there's some profoundly descriptive and profoundly intense deviant sexual behavior listed in the Pentateuch. And it hit me, God's not writing this to the world and to everybody out there. He's writing it to the old covenant church. And so when God says what he says, you can't do this, he's writing it to the church because those things happen in the church. Those things happen in the church. They don't just happen out there. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to the church and he's saying, listen, continue in the faith By living in purity in your heart and in your home. And then thirdly, he tells us to continue in the faith by living in contentment. And notice there in verse 5, as he brings up the subject of money, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you had. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Tim Keller says this, Another way to discern your heart's true love is to look at how you spend your money. So if you want to know where your love is being placed, look at how you spend your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. i want to repeat that again. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol is that you spend too much money on it and you have to try to exercise self-control constantly. As St. Paul has written, if God and his grace is the thing in the world that you love most, you will give your money to ministry, charity to the poor in astonishing amounts, 2 Corinthians 8. Most of us, however, tend to overspend on clothing, our children, or status symbols such as homes and cars. Our patterns of spending reveal our idols. Now, I'm cut by that. If you're not cut by that, let that cut you like a surgical scalpel. Because what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, one of the other enemies of the church, one of the enemies of God himself, is the love of money, is covetousness, is living for possessions and things and experiences and not living for God. And I know that all of us have that in our hearts. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. And here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. God doesn't say, live in poverty, and then everything will be great. He doesn't say that. He says, let your conduct be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And to some he gives more, and to others he gives less. And then he says, and this is the big thing we got to keep in mind, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. How can you learn to be content? The only way you're ever going to learn to be content and not live in greed, and it's interesting, Keller makes the point that Jesus said more about greed than he said about sexual sin, and yet almost nobody admits that they have a greedy heart. said more about greed than about sexual sin, and yet most people don't admit that they have a greedy heart. And so the remedy is not just stop being greedy. The remedy is meditate on the promises of God. God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That means in hard, in hard times, in, in good times, in want, in, in bouncy, our hearts must be content in God. And that means if God has given you lots of possessions, that you should use them very generously, for the advancement of his kingdom. If he's given you little, you should be content with little and use what you have for the blessing of others. We saw that, didn't we, in the reading about the Macedonian church, that they, they gave out of their lack, and they gave more than they were able. What makes somebody give more than they are able? Because they realize that they've been redeemed by the one who gave everything. He who was rich became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. He was forsaken. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is so that God can say to you, and you can be assured, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we fight for contentment, we fight for sexual purity, and we fight for love in the church. Now, there's going to be more instructions that the writer's going to give us. you look at these things and you see a failure to love the brethren, a failure to love strangers, a failure to love the suffering, a failure for sexual purity, a failure to be content and not love money, the answer is flee to Jesus Christ. The answer is he took on himself at the cross the punishment for all of our sinful failure. And that contentment and that purity and that love flow to us from his pierced hands and feet and his wounded side. And Jesus says, come to me. Cast your burdens on me. Come to me with all your mess. Come to me with all the the filth of your life. Come to me. I have made peace through the blood of my cross. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. I'll free you from sexual sin. I'll free you from greed and covetousness and living for the world. I'll free you from selfishness and self-seeking. I want to close with this story. Eric Mason, he's... um, a pastor in West Philadelphia um, in a predominantly African-American church. And he recently, recently preached a sermon on uh, strongholds, tearing down strongholds. And, and he talks about how there's a, um, there's a show called Hoarders. I don't know if you guys have seen this show called Hoarders. and go into hoarders' houses and, and he says, you're, you're 20 feet out and you can smell the, the cat urine 20 feet off the house. And you, and you go in the house, and there's a hundred cats inside, and there's fecal matter, matter on the wall, and there's trash everywhere. And he says, and, and you're astonished at what the people see inside, what they, what they walk into. And it's house after house after house that the show goes into. And he says, and then you see the person who lives there sitting on the couch, content to live in that. And Eric Mason says, after all these years in ministry, I found that most people in the church are spiritual hoarders. Life is a mess, living in lovelessness, living in sexual impurity, living in greed. Your heart is like a hoarder's house. And what we need is Jesus Christ and his saving blood and power to come in and to cleanse us because the danger is we get far too comfortable with the mess. We get comfortable with the mess. And anybody who has come to Jesus and has been redeemed knows what I'm talking about. You know that. If you're a Christian, you know. And if you don't know that, I'm begging with you to study the Scripture and examine your heart, to think about what Hugh Binning says about how there's a sea of corruption in our hearts, to see our need for Jesus Christ. You know, that's the beautiful thing about the Gospel as we close If we're not living the way we should be living, then we go to him so that he heals us so that we do. So it's not clean yourself up, get the house cleaned out, and then go to Jesus. Jesus will not have you, and you will not go to him if that's your mindset. So if you look at these things, if you see a lack of these things, we go to him with all of that mess, and we say, Lord Jesus, I have a mess in my heart. I have a a sinful hoarding house in my heart, and I need you to clean it. And Jesus says, oh, I love you. I've, I've done everything. I've, I've shed my blood for you. There's nothing that you need to do but come to me. Come to me. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll build you up. He'll bless his church. The life of faith will be manifest. The world will see it. Love will permeate our congregation. Let him, him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things for us to hear and yet things that are necessary. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would give us a zeal to continue in brotherly love, a zeal to protect purity in the home and in our hearts, and that you would give us a zeal to be content, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray that you would do a work of grace in the hearts of everyone in this place. We pray that your spirit would be taking the things that were read and proclaimed, and that you would be bringing them to powerful, um, efficacious reality in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.